by its normal uh, way of operating, says then that his son Ahaziah began to reign in his stead. And he reigned for two years and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father and served Baal and uh, did what was evil in, in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and that brings us to the end of, uh, of 1 Kings. Then in 2 Kings, Ahaziah had an accident. He fell through the lattice of his upper chamber and got sick and sent messengers from them, therefore, to go uh, inquire of Baal, the god of Akron, whether I'm going to recover from this sickness. But Elijah heard from that from God and went to give him a message from God. And he told him, are there no gods in your land that you have to go to the bales of the gods of Ekron to find out your information? And he says, because you have done that, you will not arise well from this sickness. You will die. Uh, and uh, this is something we'll make use of a little bit later. Uh, the king asked the person who told him that, who, who was it who said that to you? And the man said, he was dressed in, he, had, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And so the king said, then that's Elijah the Tishbite. So recognize Elijah by his distinctive clothing. And you may remember already that there's a connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. And one of the connections is the same clothing that they, uh, that they wore. Uh, in 2 Kings 1, beginning with verse 9, uh, the king of Syria, king, king, king Ahiah, wanted to kill Elijah because of the bad news he had sent from God. Uh, there's a, even a proverb that says that the messenger who brings bad news gets blamed for the bad news, <laughs> even if he's nothing but the messenger. And in this case... Uh, uh, he, he knew that he was a prophet of God and felt like he had more to do with it than just the fact that he uh, announced it and so he set about to kill him and he, even though he's just one man he called one of his captains of 50 and he sent him and his 50 soldiers to get Elijah and bring him back obviously so that he would kill him or punish him and when they got there and told Elijah to come down Elijah said, if, I'm, if, I, if there's a God in heaven, if I'm his prophet, uh, bring down fire upon these soldiers and kill them all. So fire came down, all 50 were uh, roasted. And then uh, the king wasn't satisfied. He sent another captain of 50 with his 50. Surely that's enough to bring one man back. And they had suffered the same fate. And he sent a third captain of 50, and he knew what had happened to the first two. So instead of asking Elijah to come down, he pled with Elijah for his life. And he said, please spare me and my soldiers. Uh, I know what you've done with the last ones. Uh, and uh, we've been sent by the king to ask you to come down and, and, and go back to see him. So Elijah had mercy upon the 50 and the plea of the uh, captain and, uh, and did not come down and, uh, and, and burn them. Uh, so he went down with him and, uh, and, and do not be afraid of him, the Lord told him. So he arose and went to him to the king, that's verse 15, and said to him, thus says the Lord, 
because you have sent messengers to require of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in, in, in Israel to inquire of his word, therefore you shall not come down from the bed in which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he did according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken, and Joram became king in his place in the, in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Uh, a little bit of confusion there. Let me try to straighten it out. Uh, first place, I have mentioned already that uh, Ahab is a sort of a uh, conflicted fellow. He obviously, primarily it looks like under the uh, uh, influence, maybe that's a too, not a strong enough word, under the influence of Jezebel, uh, sought to be a worshiper of Baal and a loyal worshiper of Baal and to support the prophets of Baal. But at the same time, he had some affinities for Jehovah and did some things uh, sort of in private that were like Jehovah would have desired him to do. And one of them just has a sort of a minor part to play is that he named both of his sons after Yahweh rather than after Baal. Uh, you look at Ahaziah, the last three letters in English are I-A-H, and that's the first part of Yahweh. And uh, the name actually means uh, Yahweh possesses or Yahweh has, as though he belonged to Yahweh. That was what he was named as a baby. It didn't work out that way with his life, but nevertheless, uh, uh, Ahab gave him a name that uh, had to do with, with Jehovah. And then Ahaziah had no children, so another son of Ahab, Ahaziah's brother, took over, and his name was Jehoram. And you would not be surprised to know that the J-E goes with Yahweh. And uh, specifically, uh, the name uh, uh, means uh, Jehovah is high, Yahweh is high. And uh, so he named both of his children uh, with, uh, with those names. And then, as it was noted here, Jehoshaphat of Israel at that same time, I mean, excuse me, Jehoshaphat of Judah at that same time, also had a son named Jehoram who became king. So there was an overlapping time when there was a Jehoram who was the king of Israel and a Jehoram who was the king of Judah. They were not the same person, but they had the same name. And that's something to sort of keep in mind if you want to straighten out the uh, uh, problems and details of the, uh, of the record uh, here that's, that's recorded. Uh, then 2 Kings 2, uh, Elijah is taken to heaven, uh, and Elisha is given, a, at his request, a double portion of Elijah's spirit. A couple of things about that. Uh, first of all, it's kind of interesting that there were several sons of the prophets there. Through this period of time with Elijah and Elijah, the Bible uses this expression, sons of the prophets, and nowhere else in the Bible is it used except in the one case where Amos is called from the sycamore field and from plowing to be the prophet, and he says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. And he apparently didn't mean there necessarily that he was, his daddy wasn't the prophet, but he meant that he was not a member of this group that's called the sons of the prophets. Uh, we'll run across one point, I'll point it out when we get to it, where there is a son of the prophet who's also called a prophet. Uh, but for the most part, there seems to be a distinction between 
the sons of the prophets and the prophets. The sons of the prophets are a large group of people. And on this particular occasion, there were 50 of them, and that doesn't seem to be all of them, who accompanied Elijah and Elijah as Elijah was about to go on his last journey. And uh, the sons of the prophet doesn't say how they knew, or, but it does say that they knew. They told Elisha that his mentor, Elijah, was about to be taken from him. And Elisha said, I knew that. And so Elisha, Elijah, let's <laughs> see your name's right in a minute. Elijah told Elisha to stay here. I'm going a little bit further. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives, that's an oath, as the Lord lives, I will go wherever you go. And so Elijah let him do that. The sons of the prophets also carried along with him, not with them, but in sight of them. And two more times, Elijah stopped and said, I'm going ahead, you stay here. And Elisha said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you to the very end. And uh, did so. And the sons of the prophets then stayed not right with them, but where they were in sight of them. And they came to the brook, to uh, the uh, River Jordan, uh, about to cross over. I'm not sure that's the River Jordan. It may have been a different river. But anyway, came to a river and crossed over. And Elijah took his cloak and struck the water with it. And immediately the waters parted. And Elijah and Elisha following him went through on, on dry ground. That's not an unusual miracle, but one that is used in this period of time to show that, that God is with the particular person who's able to perform that miracle. You remember that Moses, of course, did that in the most uh, striking instance uh, when they crossed the Red Sea. And then God has closed back on the, uh, uh, the Egyptians and Pharaoh uh, army and, and destroyed them to set the children of Israel free. But then when Joshua got ready to lead the people into the land of Canaan after the uh, uh, death of Moses, Elijah did the same thing, and the river parted so that they went through on dry ground. That was obviously God intending to show the people that he was with Joshua in the same way that he had been with Elijah. Excuse me. And with Joshua in the same way he had been with Moses. Uh, I always have trouble with, with calling names wrong. Uh, I, most of you know that I'm from Mississippi. And, and virtually every time that I begin to talk about the big city that we can go to, Birmingham, I call it Jackson. And it's been a long, long time since I've lived in Vicksburg. I was in Kosciuszko for uh, 17 years, uh, and, uh, uh, and then in Florence for three years in between that. But most of the time when I start to say something about Montgomery, I say Vicksburg. And uh, it, it's some, some kind of trick that age plays on you. I'm sure all of you are too young for anything like that to have ever happened to you. but. Uh, it happens to me uh, right, right regularly. And then in Bible times, I get used to it too. I'm worse now than I used to be. Uh, there was a time when I preached a sermon on uh, the flood and the ark, and uh, people looked a little strangely at me, but I thought the sermon went well. And I asked afterwards, uh, what was it that people were looking strangely about? And they said, well, all through that sermon, you had Moses building that ark. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, that was sort of a rarity in those days, uh, but it's much more common today than it, than it used to be. Um, so Elijah and Elisha come to the same place. They've gone through the uh, 
the river, and it clearly shown that God is with Elijah in the same way that he's been with Moses and Joshua. And uh, Elisha follows along, and Elijah asked him right before he ascends into heaven, said, what would you like for me to give you? And Elisha said, I would like to have a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah said, that's a very hard thing. But if you see me when I go up to heaven, then your wish will have been granted. Uh, that double portion of your spirit probably has a specific meaning to the people in those days. The elder son in a given family, when the father died, received a double portion of the inheritance. If he had, for example, five children, the, uh, the inheritance was divided into six parts, and the eldest son got two of them, and the rest of them got one apiece of the males, and the females got a little less. Uh, women have always been second class uh, citizens, as you know. Uh, but uh, uh, this instance is uh, probably similar to that. Uh, Elisha is saying, I want to be your heir, and I want to be, therefore, uh, follow you and you, as you have done and have a double portion of your spirit as the heir always had. And so Elijah said, you may get that depending on whether you see me going up into heaven or not. Am I talking loud enough? Can you hear me in the back? Uh, Interrupting my train of thought there. Uh, so uh, Elijah then is taken up into heaven without dying. Only two people in the Bible had that happen to them. Who was the other one? Enoch. Enoch was not for God took him. Apparently means he just was taken up by God without dying. And uh, Elijah then also uh, goes uh, to heaven. Uh, he, if you read the text carefully, it says that he went up in a whirlwind and there were chariots of fire that accompanied him. Uh, one of the favorite trivia questions I've heard in years when I used to attend things where trivia questions were asked, asked was, uh, what took Elijah up into heaven? And many times people would say, chariots of fire. But if you read the text carefully, it wasn't chariots of fire that had carried him up. It was a whirlwind that carried him up, and the chariots of fire accompanied uh, him. But Elisha saw him go up, and his mantle fell on Elijah. He had picked it up, and therefore he knew he had received the double spirit of Elijah's spirit that he had asked for. Uh, that, by the way, has brought about a common expression among us in, in even non-religious settings. If somebody takes the place of somebody else, it's not uncommon to say his mantle fell upon him. And that's the, where this, uh, uh, this statement or figure obviously uh, came from. So Elijah, Elisha then heads back to where the, uh, he had left the 50 uh, sons of the prophets, uh, they've still observed that, although they were not there. They were far enough off that they could sort of see it. And then when Elisha got to uh, uh, the river again, he took the mantle that he had gotten from Elijah and he struck the water with it and he said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And the Lord parted the water for him as he had for Elijah. And so the 50 sons of the prophets who were looking realized that uh, God had ordained Elisha to be the successor to Elijah uh, the prophet. 
that all takes place right here in the first couple of chapters of 2 Kings. And it may be helpful to remember that for the most part, if you're reading about Elijah, that'll be in 1 Kings. If you're reading about Elisha, that'll be in, in 2 Kings. Come to a little bit more of that a little bit later. Uh, well, no, right now. Uh, I thought I would give you a convenient way, uh, since we're right here, to remember uh, what the historical books are about. And when you think of an incident, in which historical book would you find it? Uh, the first one is easy. Joshua is generally the first of the historical books after the Pentateuch and the Torah, the law. And uh, uh, it's the life of Joshua. And Joshua leading the children of Israel in the conquest of, uh, of the land of Canaan. And uh, uh, 23 or 20, 24 chapters of Joshua end with Joshua's death. In 23 and 24, you have the famous uh, preached by Joshua. Uh, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Name several gods. As for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. And, uh, uh, and then Joshua dies in chapter 24. And then Judges takes place. And not surprisingly, the book of Judges tells of the period of time when the children of Israel were ju ruled by Judges. The first judge is Othniel, who is, was he a nephew, I think, of uh, Caleb, maybe a younger brother. Anyway, related to Caleb and uh, was the first judge. He appears in the last part of the first chapter of Judges. And there are several judges between him and uh, uh, chapter 16 where you have Samson, the final judge of, uh, of the book of Judges that are, that are talked about there. Uh, one of the most amazing things to me about the Bible, not laying aside the miracles, obviously, one of the most amazing things to me about the Bible is that with all that Solomon did, a, a womanizer, uh, disobeyed his parents, uh, uh, did all kinds of slaughter of Philistines. Of course, they were supposed to do that. He was the, supposed to deliver the uh, children of Israel from Philistine rule. But uh, uh, you remember how he, uh, uh, he consorted with prostitutes and took a wife from the people of uh, uh, Canaan that he'd been told not to do and that that his parents had urged him not to do, and then had this affair with Delilah, and he had his eyes so closed that even though he told her two different things that gave him his, his, his strength that weren't true, and she did those, then he finally was convinced <coughs> to tell her what really gave him his strength, that my hair is cut, because he was a, he was a Nazarite vow from his youth. My hair is cut, I'll no longer have my strength. He told her that in spite of the fact she had immediately before done what she thought would carry strength away then, and he, she did it again, and they came in, and not knowing that his strength was gone, uh, they captured him and took him back to, uh, <coughs> back to their capital where their god, Dagon, had a temple. And they put him in that temple, blinded, they poked out his eyes, and uh, chained uh, to, uh, to the temple. But then there was a big celebration, you remember, and all the people of that land came to the Temple of Dagon to, to celebrate. Uh, Samson asked for one more occasion of strength. God gave it back to him, and he pulled the temple down, the walls of the temple and the ceiling of the temple fell, <coughs> and he killed more Philistines in his death than he had done all the time during his life, the Bible says. And that's sort of the end of, of Samson. 
but you know in the book of Hebrews, and you have a list of the heroes of faith and the people who explicitly had the kind of faith that justifies, the kind of faith that calls you to believe we'll see them in heaven, and Samson is listed there. Uh, if there's a lesson anywhere in the Bible that tells us we need to be careful while, how we judge, uh, because sometimes you can't judge by outward actions. God judges by the heart, and he's the only one who knows the heart. And uh, we need to be careful uh, how we uh, think we know what somebody's gonna, what's going to happen to somebody, when in reality, in the final analysis, it's only God uh, who, who knows that. But uh, that's the first 16 chapters of, uh, uh, of, of Judges. The last chapters, 16 to 23, have a series of, all I'm going to say about them is horrible studies or horrible incidents that took place during this time. Uh, when I was a very young preacher, much more foolish, I hope, than I am now, uh, I decided people needed to know about that, and I read a couple of chapters from that, just straight from the Bible, to the congregation. And it was such a shocking thing that I was told by several people I ought not to have done that. I never have done that kind of thing again. But you might read it for yourself, and you see the kind of wickedness that people do when they're left to their own, uh, own desires. And the book ends with the statement, and in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So you read these horrible incidents and you see what happens when everybody is their own judge and does what they themselves think is right. So the first 16 chapters relate to the time of the judges. There's sort of a pattern that goes there. Uh, the last judge freed the people. They returned to God, began to worship him and follow his word, as he said. Then that judge dies, and uh, another arises, and they go off again into all kinds of wickedness and evil and serving other gods. And God raises another judge to deliver them. And uh, that's the pattern that goes through uh, several judges, ending with the time of Samuel in Judges 16. Then the last few verses, chapters of, of Judges uh, tells of the time when every man did what was right in his own eyes and how things came to a special phrase of anarchy and some of the most horrible incidents taking place that uh, you could ever uh, imagine. Uh, then uh, Ruth uh, is set to be in the days of the judges, Ruth 1-1, very short book, uh, not having anything to do much with what judges and Joshua had to do, except for the fact that it uh, reveals to us the rest of the genealogy from uh, David's father down through uh, David. And we have, therefore, a, the continuation of the genealogy that ultimately would come to Christ. And, uh, and so that's uh, the reason, probably, that the book of Ruth is included there. But it's a very uh, beautiful love story and one that uh, 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 is, is enjoyed by many, many people. The most pleasant thing you can read about in this section of Scripture uh, by any means. Then 1 Samuel begins with Samuel's birth and ends in chapter 31 with Saul's death. So anything you read about in Scripture that has to do with the Saul is king is in 1 Samuel. And uh, that includes the time when David has been anointed and, and, and the king Saul is after David and tries to kill him and God continues to be with him and lets him escape. All that is found in 1 Samuel. Then 2 Samuel begins with 
David's lament for Saul and Jonathan when they're killed by the Philistines. And, uh, and David is anointed king of Judah. And it ends in chapter 24 with the end of David's reign. So again, 1 Samuel is Saul's kingdom. 2 Samuel is David's kingdom. Uh, first couple of chapters of 1 Kings, David is still king. But he, what it does there is anoint, anoint Solomon as king so that uh, he rules on after him. And then uh, in 1 Kings, it starts with the reign of Solomon and uh, ends uh, with uh, the uh, death of Elijah, as we just, uh, just saw. And, uh, and then 2 Kings begins as Elijah is taken into heaven and will end with the fall of Babylonian and fall of, fall of Israel, fall of Judah, and the Babylonian captivity. So here's a sort of a shorthand way of, of putting it. Uh, when you get to 1 Samuel, you've got Saul reigning. 2 Samuel, you've got David reigning. 1 Kings, you've got Solomon reigning. And then the rest of the uh, divided kingdom. And uh, uh, down to uh, the death of Elijah. And I mean, the, the, the taking of Elijah into heaven. And then 2 Kings, you've got Elisha reigning through the rest of the divided kingdom and Judah alone up until the time of the Babylonian captivity. You've got First and Second Chronicles. And First and Second Chronicles follows the same pattern, the same time period that First and Second Kings does. Although uh, it looks only at the kings of Judah and not at the kings of Israel at all. So the only thing it says about Elijah, for example, is when Jehoshaphat and uh, Ahab were kings together and had conspired together. And uh, it mentions Elijah in connection with what he did with the king of Judah at that time. But otherwise, there's nothing about Israel in First and Second Chronicles. It's all the kings of Judah. And a little bit more detail of some of them than we have in, uh, uh, in First and Second Kings. Uh, I did this because uh, sort of a bias. Different people read the Bible, study the Bible in different ways. A whole lot of my friends study the Bible by learning a whole lot of verses and chapter and verse. Uh, I know a few of those, but I never did really concentrate on that. What I concentrated on in my Bible study was to learn each book of the Bible, what it said, what it was primarily about, and then as far as I could, what each chapter contained in it. Uh, talking about forgetfulness a little bit ago, uh, there was a time in my life when I was at Portland, Oregon, when I taught through first and second, through, through this time of the king, well, fought through the whole Bible, two times uh, during the time that I was there. And during that time, and a few times afterwards when I taught the same material, I learned the kings of Israel in order, the kings of Judah in order, and the prophets that prophesied during their time. Uh, if you asked me to recite that now, I'd, <laughs> I'd be lost. But I knew it once. Uh, it's strange to me how many things I used to know that uh, now I don't recall as readily as I used to. What's stranger than that, however, is the things that I used to think I know that I know now aren't so. Uh, somebody said not long ago, it's not the things that we don't know that bother us the most, it's the things that we do know that aren't so. And uh, I remember specifically when I started uh, writing this book on the Bible questions answered. <coughs> that was after I came here. And I started writing those questions and answers for Magnolia Messenger 
1980 when I first moved to uh, Kosciuszko. So I started back in those days and reading those and using some of them, rewriting some of them. And as I rewrote some of them, I thought to myself, my goodness, how in the world do I ever think that? Uh, but thankfully, we do learn as we go along. And uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with saying that I've changed my mind. It just means you're still learning. And then that can be a, a, a good thing, I hope. Uh, so anyway, that, that's how I sort of look at the Bible study and learning the Bible. And here's, again, a shorthand to it. Uh, Joshua tells the story of Joshua. Judges tells the story of the first judges down to Samson. And then the anarchy of the time when there's no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, uh, first Samuel told the story of Saul as king. Second Samuel tells the story of David as king. And first king starts with Solomon and then goes on from there through the divided kingdom. And uh, uh, if you keep that in mind, then when somebody starts to tell a story related to any of that, you'll know at least what book to go to find it. That, that to me, is a, a, a pretty good way to begin to, uh, uh, to learn the Bible. Uh, let's see, how much time do we have? Fear of... All right, should be... I want to look now, as we cook, cook, sort of concluding Elijah's time, we started out to study Elijah and Elisha, and we come to the end of Second Kings, First Kings, and we're at Elisha's ascension into heaven, and get about to the end of that story. Before we leave that, though, I want to talk about Elijah and prophecy, the time that he's prophesied about and appears in later times in the New Testament before we leave the life of, of Elijah. Uh, Turn to Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 and 2, if you would. Uh, Isaiah is the first of the prophets after uh, gets past the books of uh, wisdom. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Uh, and then Isaiah... 40. Strange thing about Isaiah, uh, it has two very definite parts. I don't think anybody denies that. You couldn't read it and deny it. Uh, the first part is the period of time when uh, Hezekiah is king, includes that time, and when there's an invasion of uh, Judah by the Assyrians under Shalmaneser. And uh, uh, Shalmaneser takes almost all of the fortified cities around Jerusalem, built up to sort of protect Jerusalem, uh, keep people from uh, getting there, and, uh, and was ready to uh, uh, besiege Jerusalem. And uh, God told him through Isaiah the prophet that uh, uh, I've heard your prayers, Ezekiah, and uh, Shalmaneser and the Assyrians will not come into this city. Uh, I will put a hook in their mouth and, a, and a, something in their nose and turn them back on the way in which they have come. Not a very comfortable feeling, uh, but uh, nevertheless, God said, I'm going to defeat them and send them back home. And shortly after that, there were uh, 185,000 of their soldiers who died in one night as the angel of the Lord came through and, and slew them. Uh, that has a rather interesting, uh, almost... Uh, uh, 
agreement. We have a, the archaeology confirms something in the New Testament has almost a confirmation in that uh, Shalmaneser wrote a, an obelisk uh, in hieroglyphics that told of that same campaign and told of capturing the cities around Jerusalem that the Bible says he captured uh, and said, I shut up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. But then he ends there. Never talks about getting to Jerusalem, never talks about conquering Jerusalem, never says anything about what happened. Uh, that's not at all unusual as the kings of the, of the people around them and their uh, things that leave for archaeology uh, do things. They record their successes and stay completely silent <laughs> about their losses. And so for him to say, I conquered this much and got this far, but then not to say anything else about Jerusalem uh, sort of confirms what the Bible says happened. Uh, history gives a different uh, reason for it, a uh, plague of some sort, but nevertheless also confirms that something like that happened. And because uh, his soldiers died, uh, he went back home ultimately in defeat and wasn't able to conquer uh, Hezekiah. Uh, and uh, see, where was I about that? <laughs> uh, Yeah, so uh, anyway, that's, I'm talking about the two parts of, of Isaiah. And the first part of Isaiah concerns primarily uh, that uh, campaign of Shalmaneser against uh, the people of Judah uh, in the uh, times of the divided kingdom when uh, Hezekiah uh, was the uh, king of, of Judah. Then beginning with chapter 4, 40, Elijah begins to talk as if the captivity of Babylon, 70 years of captivity Jeremiah had prophesied was over and the people were being set free uh, and uh, prophesied in, in that way. Because of that, unbelievers, people who don't believe in predictive prophecy, have decided that there are at least two different Isaiahs and some of them say three or four different Isaiahs, but uh, the Bible simply presents one Isaiah, has Jesus quoting from both of them and calling him Isaiah, and uh, he just writes from two different standpoints. And he's able to do that because of the predictive power of, uh, of God as he speaks through, through his prophets. And the second part, as I said, uh, begins with the end of the captivity of Babylon and talks about what happens after that, bringing Christ and the uh, suffering servant uh, into the picture uh, very vividly. Uh, so uh, let's see, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2 is where we were headed. Uh, Comfort you, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and say to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sins. That's the, turns out later that, that he's talking there about after the captivity in, uh, in Babylon. By the way, there's a historical fact about that captivity in Babylon. Up until that time, the people of Canaan, the Jews, had more trouble with idolatry than with anything else. We've seen some of the reason for that. The Canaanite gods were fertility gods and were worshipped with uh, sexual immorality. And so that obviously had its appeal beyond religion. 
but uh, uh, the Jews kept going after, the people of Israel kept going after those gods and leaving the worship of, of Jehovah. And over and over again, they were punished for that, and yet they keep, keep doing the same thing until the captivity of Babylon. And they stayed in Babylonian captivity 70 years, as Jeremiah had said they would, and then they were set free to go home, uh, and never after that was idolatry a problem for Israel or the Jews. They had other sins. At the time of Jesus, they had a number of them, but idolatry wasn't one of them. And uh, so you could say that God finally cured the Jews of idolatry with the Babylonian captivity. And, uh, uh, and yet, uh, uh, as Isaiah begins to talk about it, he talks about it as if that has already happened. At the time Isaiah wrote, not only was Babylon, the Babylonian captivity not began, Babylon was not even the main uh, enemy of the people in those days. Assyria was still active, and it was not until the year, well, I was going to say the year, and I'm not going to. But anyway, till the Pacific year when there was a battle at uh, Karshemish, up north of, uh, of the land of Palestine, uh, between uh, uh, the Egyptians and the uh, Assyrians to see who was going to be the, the chief ones after that. Assyria won, and Babylon came right after them and defeated Assyria, so Babylon became the dominant power at about that time. And uh, uh, all that had not even happened when this takes place. So Isaiah is being given a picture of things to come that's far beyond the time when he lived and when he, when he wrote. Uh, then turn to, uh, well, then notice verse three, and f 3 through 5 of Isaiah 40. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, Isaiah speaks of a time when somebody will come to prepare the way of the Lord and make it easy for him to do what he wants to do. And he does it in the figure of a superhighway. I guess some of you were, as I was, around when the superhighways were being built. Uh, I traveled uh, in those days, uh, U.S. Highway 51, uh, on a regular basis while U.S. Highway 50, Interstate 55 was being built in parallel to it. And as it was being built, you'd have a few miles of it, and then you'd get back on 51 and have a few miles of it again. And you could see exactly what uh, Isaiah was prophesying, that uh, there was a rough ground ahead and to prepare the way of the Lord, he makes all the, uh, uh, plows down all the mountains and fills the valleys with them and then shapes out all the curves and makes a straight, uh, even pathway uh, for the Lord to follow. That's a figurative statement as to how uh, John the Baptist will be the voice crying in the wilderness and make the way easier for the Lord by calling out a people ready to hear the message of Jesus is the way that uh, that's uh, fulfilled. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes if we have time. Talk a little bit more about that next week. <laughs> Isaiah is born. I mean, John the Baptist is born. And in uh, 
Matthew 3, 1 to 6, parallels in Mark 1 and Luke 3, uh, he, uh, uh, he comes, the angel said to Zechariah, he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then I want to read with you John 1, verses 6 to 9, and that'll be the end of our lesson for today. John 1, verses 6 to 9. Um, in Mark, Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three, uh, John, uh, John the Baptist identifies himself by these terms from Isaiah 40, verse, three, verse, uh, verse anyway, right after 42 and 43. A voice crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Over and over again, John the Baptist says that's him, that he came in fulfillment of that prophecy. Matthew has him saying that, Mark has him saying that, Luke has him saying that, and then John has him saying that in a more uh, controversial time and way. Uh, look at John chapter 1, um, verses, 11, uh, verses 6 to 9, to start with. Uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which lightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor the will of flesh, but of the will, not of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is whom of, he of whom I said, <coughs> He who comes after me is before me, and from his fullness we have all received grace from grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's Son. He has made him known. <coughs> so John the Baptist is saying, I came to announce Jesus, and uh, I'm doing so, and he's greater than I. And then down at uh, verse 19, This is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, then they asked him several other people that were supposed to come, and he denies that he's any of them, and he says, Who are you? And he again goes back to this Isaiah 40. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. We'll start right there in John uh, next week and see what... Uh, John has to say about himself. And we'll see that John the Baptist is said to be not only a prophet, but more than a prophet, because he was the uh, subject of prophecy and talked about in prophecy. And uh, John the Baptist, Isaiah was the John the Baptist who was to come. Thank you.